You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name's Tyler Hindman. I'm part of the nursing education team in emergency, and I'm also one of the education fellows working for the Education Hub. Dr. Claire Wilkin is a paediatric emergency physician at the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne. Claire has extensive experience in critical care, including intensive care and retrieval medicine. Today, we'll be highlighting the rise of acute behavioural presentations to the ED and discuss the safest and most effective ways to approach these patients who are presenting. Hi, Claire. Hi, Tyler. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I'm going to jump straight into it. I just want to ask you, working in ED, have you noticed there's been a rise in acute behavioural presentations? Yeah, definitely. I think obviously with all the issues that happened in 2020, um, we did see a significant rise in behavioural presentations to ED. Many of those children may already have had underlying diagnoses and the effect of lockdown and not having their usual support systems around them, you know, had a really significant effect on them and their families. And we saw many more families reaching out for help um, than we had seen before. So somewhere between sort of a 20 and 40% increase in uh, behavioural presentations, depending on how we categorise them. So a really significant uh, increase uh, over the course of last year. Can you explain some of the acute behaviour presentations that we see? What, what classifies acute behaviour presentation? Yeah, it's really one of the, the most challenging components is actually the classification. So thinking about um, the, the challenging presentations, what we're really looking for is the kind of behaviours that threaten either the individual or those around them. Those behaviours we tend to see arrive, arising out of either the individual their interaction with the environment, with other people around them, um, and the sort of a combination of those of those things. So, it tends to be behaviours that we see as aggressive or hostile, um, and they may be directed at others around them or at themselves. Um, certain aspects within the environment may significantly escalate or de-escalate those behaviours depending on the situation. Um, and then, obviously, there's the interaction that they have with those around them and how that may impact on the behaviours. Great. Thanks for clarifying that. I want to ask, managing acute behavioural presentations to ED is very challenging. Do you have any suggestions on how staff who are working in ED and maybe not familiar with these type of presentations and how they can best approach uh, these patients? Oh, it's a big question. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> That's okay. So I think that it's really about keeping it very simple. Um, I think the most concerning part about these presentations is they often are very distressing, both for the young person who's involved, their family, and also for the staff who, as you said, may not have extensive experience in managing these kids. Probably the most important thing is actually just staying calm. So not getting uh, involved necessarily in whatever is happening. So not finding yourself drawn into the behaviour or almost participating in the behaviour. It sounds silly that, you know, a grown adult may be drawn into participating in the behaviour, but if a young person is very elevated, yelling, um, hitting out at those around them, spitting, any of those kind of behaviours people can find very triggering um, and often find themselves raising their voice themselves or feeling, you know, aggression rising within themselves. And obviously that's a sort of a really disastrous thing to happen. So it's probably the most important thing is to remember to stay calm. And then to try and look around you and think about, what's happening in the space. Are there too many people? How many people are onlookers and don't really need to be there? Who do you need to keep the young person and the other staff safe? Do you have those people around you? Have you called for help appropriately to to get an appropriate team there to assist you? And then thinking about the strategies that you're going to use to try and de-escalate the young person. So we can talk about those in a few minutes. Yeah, great. Thanks for clarifying that. And um, I, I like the fact that you pretty much said don't compete or you don't need to 
uh, yeah, it's not about winning or losing, is it? No, I think that's the thing. And I think it's a little bit different to sometimes what happens in other environments and, and even in the adult space where the concept of a show of force is often used to try and de-escalate the situation in, in other environments. And with young people, that almost you know, universally doesn't work. So if you have a large number of security guards or a large number of police officers that are present, um, you know, with kind of a very hostile stance, it's almost universally going to escalate the situation and it's probably the last thing that, that we want to do. So it's one of the things that clearly doesn't work um, and we really want to try and step away from that in, in this space. Fantastic. Um, so what is it about EDs that don't make it a very good environment for these patients? <laughs> so many things. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, EDs are noisy, they're overstimulated, there's so many people, there's sounds that we can't identify, smells, um, all kinds of things in an ED are really not helpful. You know, if you really wanted to design an ideal environment to de-escalate these young people, it would be quiet, um, it would be, you know, have some soft music available, some soft lighting, minimal staff, and just really a space for them to be able to collect their thoughts and and get themselves together um, and the ED is pretty much the exact opposite of that mm. everywhere you turn there's noise there's people crying there's you know different staff interactions that might be escalating for a young person it's pretty much the exact opposite of, of where you want these young people to be so it is a particularly challenging environment yeah absolutely and also challenging to even just uh, um, do the day-to-day -day assessment and history I want to ask when you're sort of taking a history um, what information are you looking out for what do you want to know I think the key part about taking the history is obviously having somebody to take a history from. Um, and in many cases, the young person that's standing in front of you with the behaviours of concern is not the right person. Um, and hopefully they're accompanied by a carer or by somebody who's assisted them to hospital on that day. And that's the person that you want to try and focus your history um, on. It's also important to often that person may be quite escalated as well, given the situation that's come beforehand and what's happened in the pre-hospital space can be quite distressing for everybody. So it's about being very calm with that individual as well and being very focused in what you need to take the history. You don't want the young person's entire birth history at that point. You want to know the things that you need to know right now. What was the particular incident that triggered today? Um, sometimes that will get you into a very long story that, again, it's not the right time. So then if that doesn't work, you want to move on to have you seen these behaviours at home before? What works for you at home to de-escalate these behaviours? I think the key point is it's not the time for discipline. So sometimes what might have triggered the behaviours is, you know, that the young person wasn't allowed access to a screen or an iPad or something that was what they wanted. And now is not the time to be disciplining the young person. So if a screen is what de-escalates an acute situation, that's what you want to get. And you want to get that screen out and put on whatever it is that they want to watch. And then we can move towards preventing the behaviours on another situation later on rather than focusing on providing discipline at this point. So we want to know what is it that de-escalates the, these behaviours at home. And then once you've got the situation under control, you can look in more detail at what the precipitants were and how we can prevent that from happening in the future. Yeah, and, and that's a real ED skill as well, building a rapport really quickly. So I guess it's using those skills and transferring them into these type of um, presentations as well because we do it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. We're used to taking, you know, short, concise histories from families in, you know, acutely stressful situations. And this is no different. It's just that the information that you need is less about their history of asthma and epilepsy and more about when you've seen 
seen these behaviours before, how have they looked um, and what have you done to help and what things do work, but also critically what things don't work, like what things make this worse. Mm-hmm. Because the carers live with these young people all the time um, and they are very often have a number of strategies that they use. They may have already tried them before coming to hospital, but it's worth knowing what they are to see which of those we might be able to adapt in our environment and which of those we sort of say, oh, well, that's not going to work here or that's not something we can do um, and sort of trying other things that that might be more useful. Great. There's some really good practical advice there. Thank you. Do you need to assess the patient physically? It kind of depends. It right. uh, depends on the situation. So obviously if the young person has physical injuries that we know about um, on arrival, then yes, at some point they will clearly need a physical assessment. A lot of the physical assessment that we might do traditionally can often be done by observation. So if you're standing in the patient's doorway or in a proximity where you can observe them appropriately, a lot of what we would do in the traditional examination can just be done by observing the young person's movement. So, you know, are they moving comfortably? Do they have a limp? Um, Do they seem to be holding on to a part of their body or look like they're in pain? Are they grimacing? You know, all of those things that we would do in a very young child around observation, it's very similar um, in this situation, but we're trying to do it in a way that doesn't uh, impact on the young person's behaviour or make them feel less safe than they do at that time. So it's really about minimising the examination that you need to do, being very targeted if you do need to examine something, building the rapport before you do that, and then ensuring that you're maintaining the rapport throughout the examination. For example, if you were examining a laceration or a wound that the young person has, you know, getting their compliance and and getting them on board with that process. They may like to remove the bandage themselves or assist you in looking at or cleaning the wound um, and then being part of the decision-making around how you might close or dress that wound. Um, And having them involved in that conversation is often the way in which you get to actually examine the wound at all. Um, And it might not be ideal or perfect, um, but it's it's often the, the way forward at that point. You've recently been involved in writing a CPG for uh, Ambulance Victoria. What are the key points that you sort of um, came from it? What, what kind of things have you added into it that um, uh, help these practitioners that might not uh, see particularly paediatric acute rise? What, what kind of things? Yeah, so writing the um, AV CPG um, was also in conjunction with, um, I was part of writing the um, acute behavioural disturbance or acute agitation guideline for the um, electronic therapeutic guidelines um, group as well, um, which is obviously a very large uh, group across the whole of Australia that were involved in, in writing that. So it was a real privilege to be part of that group um, and it was really amazing to get insight from a number of other uh, practitioners who also work with um, adults with developmental disability, um, the elderly, as well as the standard adult population. And it was really interesting to see the differences across the different groups and how different people approach the, a similar problem, essentially. Um, I think the, the major thing that we took away from that is really the focus on de-escalation. So obviously we have pharmaceutical uh, means at our disposal um, and obviously our last resort is obviously having physical restraint there and being able to do that safely and appropriately when it is required. But really changing the focus of all of these guidelines to focus on the de-escalation process that should come both before, during and after any other form of restraint that may be required. Um, And that's really been the the focus of of all of this this work. Um, Thinking about the de-escalation process, it's really, I guess, trying to keep it simple. Um, It's something that I guess is quite difficult to teach and really people need exposure to doing it themselves Mm -hmm. and observing practitioners who are competent um, in the provision of de-escalation. 
Um, but there's some simple, I guess, uh, takeaway messages that, that people can, um, can learn. Um, and I touched on some of them before, thinking about, you know, remaining calm, but also being cognizant of what things you find challenging mm. and what sort of behaviour um, you might find intimidating or um, triggering for yourself. Um, I guess the main thing that we focus on is sort of the one person, one voice approach, yeah. um, which is really that there should only be one person speaking to the young person rather than different voices coming from different places. They're not sure who to speak back to, who to listen to, um, and it gets very confusing. So we definitely focus on one voice. That voice should be always calm, quite monotonous. Sorry, that voice should be, you know, quite calm and very much using sort of a monotone, very repetitive, simple kind of script. Um, so no complex words, no complex decisions, um, just very much a, a simple conversation. We really need to focus on the things that are important. So if the young person is actively um, threatening or um, aggressive towards a particular staff member, is immediately identifying that as being an issue and then working to resolve it. So either have that staff member uh, move away um, or reminding the young person that that behaviour is not appropriate and suggesting an alternative for them. Um, we frequently use things like forced choices. I need you to sit down. You can sit on the bed or the chair. So not do you want to sit down mm. because the answer to that will always be no, yes. but just that you've got two options. It's the chair or the bed yeah. and, you know, you don't care which one they take, but they need to take one of those. It makes the decision-making process for someone who's very distressed much more straightforward because they've only got a simple decision to make, but it also gives them back some control and power because they can make that decision. Um, and I think that's really important is asking a patient what they want in that situation is really something that's going to, you know, critically heighten the situation because they don't know what they want. If they knew, they wouldn't be in the situation that they're in. So it's really about trying to identify how to help them um, without escalating the situation. So being quiet, um, you know, being very simple in the language that's used, giving them time to respond, um, using forced choices, setting clear boundaries, but also focusing on what's important. You know, if they're kicking a wall that's probably not a big deal. If they're kicking a person, that's clearly a problem. Right. So, you know, it, it's about managing the situation so that it's safe for everybody without being overly controlling and trying to give them some control in the situation as well. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think that giving them some control is really important and um, it's respecting the fact that they are acutely unwell. I'm glad that you mentioned early on just there about the CPGs around um, developmental disabilities as well. Does that fall into it as into acute behavioural presentations as well? Yes, yeah, certainly. You know, there's a significant portion of the young people that we see that have a background diagnosis of some sort of neurodivergence. So mm -hmm. many young people may be autistic, they may have ADHD or, or developmental disability, intellectual disability. All of those things can be part of um, the behaviours of concern, um, particularly around young people who may have difficulties with expressive language so that it's it doesn't take much to you know, provide them a source of frustration if they're not able to express what they need or what they want um, and rapidly we can see things get quite out of control. I think there's an expectation often when managing um, adults with behaviours of concern that they have the same level of understanding as the person who's communicating with them. And with children and young people, that's not always the case. You know, they may have an undiagnosed intellectual disability or expressive language delay. That means people expect something from them that they may or may not be capable of. Um, and it's important to remember, that's why we kind try and keep things so very simple um, in these interactions, because even if they do have... Um, 
capacity at some time when they're escalated and distressed they may not be able to maximize their their own capacity in that space yeah and people find it difficult even if they don't have a a developmental disability of Mm. articulating their emotions at heightened times of their absolutely it's like whatever whatever baseline you come from it's always going to be a much more challenging situation and for many of these young people it's really by the time they get to the ed they're really in such a distressed situation many of them can't speak at all and we often get frequent flyers that we call, um, if that's an appropriate term, but we have a behavioural support plans. Can you explain you know, the role of behavioural support plans and why they're useful in ED? Yeah, so I think the behavioural support plans that we use in ED are often different to what's used elsewhere um, within hospitals and, and other spaces because behavioural support plans can form a number of roles, I guess. Um, and when they're being used in an outpatient setting, they're often around procedures or around um, particular interventions that the young people might need. Um, and that's where those behavioural support plans have been put in place. So they might look at things that um, the young person needs to, in order to interact um, more safely or something that they might use to distract them while they're having a procedure. And that's obviously a very valid role of a behavioural support plan. The behavioural support plans that we use in ED are a little bit different. Um, they tend to focus, we keep them very simple, you know, as you know, Tyler, that, you know, those of us in ED, we, we uh, you know, need things to be simple and yep. only just a handful of words or we get easily confused. So it's important that the, the behavioural support plans in ED are very simple. So we tend to use sort of bullet points. These are the things that trigger these young people. These are the things you really don't want to do. Um, these are the things that work to de-escalate them. Um, these are some things that we find helpful that we might have available to us in our space. And they're really important to update regularly mm-hmm. um, because obviously the situation for many young people change and their experience within our ED may change as well. So something that works on one occasion, the next time may cause a big problem and we need to know about that and change it um, on each occasion. Um, we also tend to include, um, so it's really about triggers. It's about what works to de-escalate the young person and what doesn't work. Anything more than that is kind of additional information that probably isn't relevant in a behavioural support plan in ED. Yeah. Uh- Obviously, restraining patients, and we're talking about children here, um, is usually the last resort. Um, Unfortunately, it is a reality in some situations, but how do you do it safely? Yeah, it's really tricky, isn't it? I think it really comes down to trying to minimise the the physical hands-on restraint that occurs. So we can be restraining a young person in terms of restraining their ability to access locations. So, for example, we might use um, a safe room or a safe space where we know that the young person can't exit in multiple locations to dangerous areas. Um, We might provide sort of a a barrier or just people located at exits that might be far away from the young person, but they may be able to uh, physically intervene if the young person tries to leave via those exits. So that's really, I guess, the first stage of physical restraint is preventing somebody from exiting a space that we would rather they didn't for safety reasons. It's really critical from a physical restraint perspective to remember that the reason that we're intervening is for safety and safety only. We're not trying to stop the young person from a behaviour. We're just trying to maintain the safety of both them and the staff around them. Um, As we all know in ED, occupational violence in our space is a really big risk Mm. um, and it's one that we need to have a zero-tolerance policy um, towards but we also need to be cognisant of what constitutes true uh, occupational violence in our space um, and what is around keeping ourselves safe as well. So providing that barrier at a distance um, is certainly the first step and and the one that we would hope is sufficient to manage the young person's behaviour. 
Um, where there's a tree safety risk, for example, the young person may have um, a weapon that they're planning to harm themselves with uh, rather than, you know, something towards another. We may need to activate additional assistance, such as asking the police to attend and assist with disarming the young person. During that procedure, obviously that ongoing de-escalation needs to continue in the hope that at some point the young person may dispose of that weapon themselves or be happy to hand it over to a staff member um, before needing to progress to physical restraint. Um, in terms of being safe around physical restraint, it's really around staff being appropriately trained and mm-hmm. untrained staff should not attempt physical restraint at any time. Um, I guess the, the background answer is that if people don't know how to perform physical restraint, they shouldn't attempt it and they should allow the young person to leave the environment um, while awaiting assistance yeah, um, and right. just track them from a distance so that they know where they are. Um, but attempting physical restraint is, is a one-way track to getting hurt. Yeah, absolutely. It causes some serious injuries. What about chemical restraint? What kind of um, options do we have there? Yeah, so I think it's worth remembering that chemical restraint is still restraint. Yes. Um, so we're still providing a means to try and stifle the behaviour with the use of medication. It's certainly preferable to the use of physical restraint, which causes injuries and trauma to both staff and, and young people alike. Um, so first of all, from a chemical restraint perspective, it's very reasonable to offer oral medications as a first line in almost all young people, even in young people who are significantly elevated. As I said, providing that proximity, um, proximity boundary and being further away um, and just sort of having that conversation and offering oral medications to the young people should always be our first step. Yeah. Um, oral medications should never be hidden in food. That only creates dramas for carers and and other people who may be interacting with the young person down the track. Certainly preferable to explain what a medication's going to do, perhaps even show the medication or offer it to the young person. Um, We can provide medications in chocolate topping. Mm -hmm. We can, you know, provide it with jelly or other things that might make it more palatable for the young person. But we should never hide them, as I said. So it's always something that we can offer. We may need to offer three or four times before it's accepted. um, And that's a very reasonable thing to do as well. Mm -hmm. If we have a significant safety risk or the situation's not progressing after a period of time, there may be a decision to move to intramuscular medication. And that should really be something that's made in conjunction with senior staff um, in the emergency department. Um, it should never be made by junior staff acting alone. And that may be that may involve calling somebody on the phone for assistance or making those decisions together with a more senior member of staff. Um, the administration of intramuscular medication is not without trauma for mm, the young person and obviously not without risk um, from a safety perspective to the staff around them as well. Um, the selection of medications is, you know, one of those things that, you know, is uh, changes, I guess, yeah. um, and this recent CPG changes are reflective of that. So the medications that are available to us now um, are different to what was available five or ten years ago and there has been a change in practice around that. Um, so the medications that we offer now are, are certainly different. Um, in terms of selecting what medication you might use, uh, medications like midazolam, particularly in young people with developmental disability, um, we do tend to see uh, an elevated risk of a paradoxical reaction, so a reaction where the young person would become more uh, heightened or elevated in their behaviour and actually have the opposite effect to what we were looking for. So we tend not to use um, midazolam as a first-line medication. Um, Something like olanzapine or droperidol would probably be the preferred medications initially. In a situation where we're looking at 
a true safety risk, so risk of life or limb um, either to the young person or the staff immediately around them, we may resort to using a rescue medication. And a rescue medication um, would commonly be something like intramuscular ketamine. Um, what we're essentially doing is we want a rapid onset medication um, that's going to remove that risk from those around them. I think the critical thing to remember about the use of chemical restraint is that while you may change the behaviours immediately because of the onset of sedation um, that the medication provides, it's quite likely that when the young person wakes up after the impact of that sedation, they may be as escalated as they were when they went to sleep. Mm. So you may only be delaying um, the situation rather than solving it. So it's worth remembering that these medications, while they are helpful in an acute situation, they're not therapeutic. Um, And so that's I guess, something that we need to keep in mind. We're not providing, you know, an antibiotic for cellulitis. Mm -hmm. We're we're providing something that allows us to gain control, which is very reasonable in the right circumstances, but we do need to remember the the point of of those kind of medications. Thanks for clarifying that. And I want to ask, when do you consider discharge? When are they safe to go home? Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Mm. So um, initially looking at uh, kind of that acute de-escalation when the young person's quite settled, they're able to, ha- able to have a bit more of a conversation um, with the staff caring for them. We may be able to identify what the triggers were, how we can ameliorate those for the young person to go home. And it's also about talking to the carers and sort of getting a feel for whether they feel safe to take the young person home um, and what the situations and supports are at home so that we can see if there's anything there that also needs to be addressed or that we can make on referrals in order to manage that. The question around does the young person need a mental health review is always one that I guess comes up quite frequently. And it's really, again, about um, what the context of the presentation is. So we see quite frequently in young people with uh, traumatic backgrounds that they may express suicidal ideation in the context of escalated behaviour. But once that particular event has passed, when we're able to have a conversation with the young person in a calm state, they may actually disclose that they didn't really, that wasn't really their intent and they're able to sort of, I guess, safety plan in a more appropriate way once once they're calm. So it's important to, I guess, take what you hear in that situation with very highly escalated behaviour. Obviously, we need to hear what they're saying, but just taking it a little bit with a grain of salt and ensuring that we explore it properly once the young person's calm, just to get a real sense of whether there is a risk and whether this is something that needs acute mental health involvement or whether the ongoing follow-up that many of these young people already have with community mental health is actually adequate for their ongoing care. Thanks. It's really useful advice. Finally, do you have any take-home key messages you'd like to share about this topic? Yeah, so many, Tyler. I'm sure. (laughs) Um, I guess the main thing is around, um, you know, thinking carefully about how you approach these situations. Sometimes in ED, we kind of always want to be the hero. We want to be the person that Mm. kind of rushes in and saves the day. um, And we want to be the the one that de-escalates the situation and gets everything calm and and under control, particularly in situations where perhaps like a code grey has been called. Um, and we just want to, you know, get the code sorted, get everybody to be able to move on with their day. And, and that's kind of how we do things. But these situations often take a long time to diffuse um, and certainly much longer than many other cases that we see in ED. And it's we need to think carefully about how we manage that time. 
So it's about going in, being the person that can be there, can be the one voice and can be a consistent caregiver during that time. And often having a combination of a member of nursing staff and a member of medical staff who can then provide that um, comfort to the young person, um, both either continuously or on an intermittent basis, um, is certainly of value. But it does take a long period of time, and it's but it is worth the investment, I guess, is, is the key take-home message mm-hmm. there. And then when interacting with the young people, staying calm, being clear about what you want, um, providing them with options, but keeping them simple and restricted, and then facilitating discharge or a disposition plan as quickly as you reasonably can. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and expertise. We really appreciate it. No worries at all. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.